Well, good morning. My name is Chad Myers. I'm our Adult Discipleship Director. It's a privilege to be with you in this room. Uh, as we've talked about and we've anticipated for several months now, this is a very historic day in the life of our church. And I thought I would dress the part. Yeah, I know a few claps. Some reluctant claps, I understand, because you have, you're disappointed that I didn't have a coat on. Well, let me just say that this is a waistcoat, and I think it counts for partial credit. Uh, also, if you can't tell, I am feeling a little bit under the weather, so I wore my Air Jordans uh, as a bit of inspiration because uh, he played one of his best games through sickness, so I'm going to preach through mine, and uh, I'm glad to be with you here this morning. This is a standalone sermon in honor of today, and I'd like to start out with uh, this illustration. In 1972, there was an NFL divisional game between the San Francisco 49ers and the Dallas Cowboys. The 49ers uh, had a large lead going into the fourth quarter because of their star running back Larry Schreiber and the struggling quarterback Craig Morton. They were ahead 28 to 13 as the fourth quarter started. Despite missing most of the season with a separated shoulder, Roger Staubach came in for the Dallas Cowboys during the fourth quarter and started a comeback. Within two minutes, he had thrown one touchdown and a pivotal moment of the Cowboys kicking an onside kick and recovering it led to Staubach's leading them down the field again and throwing a game-winning touchdown, two touchdown passes within two minutes, leading the Cowboys to victory 30-28 to over the San Francisco 49ers. Now, what did they have that the 49ers had but lost? What do you have that if you have it, you want to keep it, maintain it, and leverage it, if you've lost it, you try really hard to get it back, and if you don't have it, you long for it, but you realize it's difficult to start. Momentum. Today, the title of my talk is The Momentum of the Minority. And if I was writing a book, which I'm not, but the subtitle would be Having an Underdog Faith in a Big Dog World. You like that? How many, how many of you buy that book? Oh, good, more than my mom. Thank you. <laughs> what I hope to do in our brief time this morning is address where we are as a local church, but also keep in mind where Christianity has been and where the church is in America, but also give us something to think about for our own personal faith. So I want us to be thinking of along the spheres of three applications for me individually, who we are as a church in Mount Horeb, and then where we are as a church in our culture. What do we, how do we leverage momentum in our own personal lives and as a church in our faith, when God has rescued us and been guiding us and been leading us, how do we maintain that? What obstacles get in our way? What might we be facing right now personally or culturally? And how do we, as we just sang, how do we in Jesus' name press on? You may be familiar with the story. God rescued his people out of Egypt, out of slavery there. 
and he is going to lead them into the promised land. Before they are on the precipice of the promised land, they send out 12 scouts, one from each tribe, and they go into the land to look at it and then to come back and to report. This is our passage for today, Numbers 13, 26 through 33. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. You see, God rescued his people out of Egypt. He goes to war, not with the Egyptian people, but with the Egyptian gods. And he shows that he's more powerful than the Egyptian gods. And he rescues his people out of slavery. And he brings them to Sinai, where he enters into covenant love with his people. And he gives them the covenant law. Notice the order. He does not give them the law and then set his love upon them. Grace always precedes obedience. It's the same good news Old Testament to the New Testament. God initiates relationship based on nothing that we've done. He rescued them out of Egypt based on nothing that they've done, based on the promises that he had gave to Abraham to be their God and they would be his people. He rescues us and invites us into covenant fidelity based on the truth he's given to us. So he brings them to Sinai, enters into covenant love with them, gives them the covenant law, It says, you will be my treasured possession. You are to be a billboard out there for the world that is shining with its blinking lights. This is what redeemed humanity looks like. Do you want to get some of it? And they enter into a relationship with the living God, and they stay at Sinai. There's debate on how long, but it's about a year before they leave Sinai, and they're going to go into the promised land. They're in the desert of Paran, and they go ahead and send out scouts to look at the land. Check it out. Who's there? What's going on? God's promised us that we could go into this land, but we need to check it out. And they send out scouts, and they come back, and they get conflicting reports. You have a majority, and you have the minority. And they have momentum based on who they are and what God has been doing for them. Look at these signs and wonders, and you've rescued us, and you've brought us out. And you've set your love upon us and we're meant to be a missional people and we're about to go into the land so that we can continue to be invitational to all the nations around us. And we have this momentum, but now they're at a crossroads. And when your momentum of faith is at a crossroads, you will have both opportunity and opposition. You will have both opportunity and opposition. Opposition. 
Here they have the opportunity to trust God again. You've seen what God can do. You've seen how good God is. You've seen that God is not simply an angry, petty God, but he flows with compassion and mercy. You've been invited into loving faithfulness to him, and he will provide for you. You have an opportunity to trust him again, even in a foreign land, even in the midst of obstacles that seem too big. Some of you are facing giants right now. Or some of you are being invited into a new land, but you're looking at the giants and you're getting conflicting reports. I don't know if we can go forward in this new land together because we've never been in this type of season as a relational couple before, but I think we're being invited into new ways of relating to each other and listening to each other and being honest with each other, but I'm just so scared. Fear is a giant. Maybe you're facing the giant of doubt. God's, you've been, you've been faithful to me. I know you've been faithful to me, but I've never come to this crossroads before and I just don't know if you're gonna provide like you have. I think you're calling me to something new, something deeper, something a bit scary, but I just am struggling with the giant of doubt. What is your giant that you see in the new land that God is inviting you to? There's always going to be opposition when we have opportunity to maintain our momentum. Often, the greater the opportunity, the greater the opposition. Sometimes that opposition even comes from within our own family. Sometimes that opposition comes from the adversary. The Bible says that we have an adversary. He's known as Satan. He's known as the devil. He loves to accuse us. He loves to tempt us. And when we give in to temptation, he loves to stand over us and point his finger at us. And he loves to laugh at us and shame us and humiliate us and tell us what a wretch we are. And God says, that's not my voice. Proverbs says, I think somebody needs to hear this today. Getting a little charismatic up here. That's all right. <laughs> I didn't say this in the first sermon. I think somebody needs to hear this today. Proverbs says, though a righteous person falls seven times, they get back up. It's not about how much you fall. It's about how much you get back up. Can I get an amen? All right. You already gave me some, but I was wanting some more. <laughs> they have an opportunity for momentum, but they see the opposition and the majority report, they just can't get over what they see. They just can't get over what they see. Their obstacles were too big and their God was too small. This is some of the characteristics of the majority report. If you listen to what they said when they reported it back to Moses, we can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it. Notice who the subject is. It kind of sounds like the disciples when Jesus says to the rich young ruler, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then come and follow me. And then he walks away sad, he can't do it. And the disciples say, say gosh, who then can be saved? How is this stuff even possible? The majority trust their senses too much. Notice what it said. We saw, we looked like they saw we looked like this to them. 
This is of everything we see. Sometimes the majority report in our mind and in our heart is looking at all of our limitation. We're fixated on our limitations and we're looking at all of our resources and we're looking at all of our skills and we're looking at who we've been and haven't been in the past and we say, I just don't think God can do it. And it says that they gave a bad report. Now that's a euphemism. A euphemism is simply a softer way of saying something that's actually pretty hard. So what's really going on here in the Hebrew is this. They, that majority of ten, they slandered God's character. What they're really saying is this. God is setting us up for failure. I don't know about you, but sometimes I struggle with that report. God brought you here to maybe watch you fall and expose you and show what a fool you are and humiliate you, and he brought you here so that you would fail. It's not God. It's not how he works. It's not how his love works. It's not what he wants to do. He might test our faith, but it's never so that we would fail. It's for a purification of our faith. The Bible says here that you have a majority report and then you have a minority report. All right? Caleb and Joshua, you know, Joshua is the one who was going to lead them into the promised land. Caleb and Joshua, it says this about them. They had a different spirit. Some of us can leave today with a different spirit. You're discouraged. You're stressed. You've been in a spiritual state of dryness and you just don't think anything can change. Maybe you're on the verge of despair because it's just ongoing and the problems just are relentless. And the majority report has been telling you, see, God's just bringing you out here to watch you fail, to watch everything go to pieces. But the minority report has a different spirit. We can leave here today with a different spirit. This is what Caleb says. Then Caleb silenced the people for Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. He goes on to say in Numbers 14, 9, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid. Listen to what he repeats. Do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Fear loves to sabotage our momentum of faith at every step, but we have to step out in courage. The only way to beat fear is not to think about it. It's not even necessarily to pray harder about it. It's to act against it. You have to step out in faith. You have to step out in courage. You have to feel fear. Okay, that's my fear. And then you have to move against fear. That's the only way you back fear off. Notice what he says. He didn't say don't rebel against me. He didn't say don't rebel against Joshua. He said don't rebel against the Lord. In the in this season of discernment that we have been in, uh, the pastors and the staff and our lay leaders, we've done a lot of hard work to try to present to you what's going on in the denomination. And we're not saying, hey, you have to listen to the authority of my voice. You have to listen to the authority of Pastor Jeff or Trevor or Emma or Grace Marie or, or Martha or William or what's going on. We're saying this, we want you to listen to the authority of what God has already said. We're not saying don't rebel against us. We're just people delivering the message. We're saying, hey, let's be thoughtful and let's step in line with what God has already prescribed and proscribed for us. 
Notice the characteristics of the mighty minority. They trust God's promises. They look to God's provision. Now here's the trick about provision. God doesn't provide the power before you proceed. He only does it when you take the step. I had to learn that the hard way. Because I'd pray, I'd pray, I'd pray. All right, I got to do this thing. I got to have a hard conversation. I got to give forgiveness. I got to reach out in love or whatever step of faith that was. I'd pray, I'd pray, I'd pray. And I'd feel powerless all the time. And I'd be like, oh, where's the power? You promised you'd give me power. And I had to learn this the hard way is God doesn't provide the power before we proceed. He gives it when we step out in faith and have the conversation and take the next step and offer that forgiveness. That's when the spirit comes. He's always almost late. I like that too. (laughs) Notice the mighty minority. They have the words in the spirit of Jesus, with God all things are possible. And they walk by faith, not by sight. They see. They don't put the rose-colored glasses on. They see everything. They're honest about it. But they walk by faith, not by sight. In the last many months here at Mount Horeb, there was a committee put together, the Way Forward Committee, and they were tasked with scouting out the landscape, if you will, of the denomination, who we are as Mount Horeb, what are our values, what's happening in the denomination And they were invited to do deep dives and research and come back to report. And so I'd I'd like to ask Martha Thompson, who was on the Way Forward Committee, to come forward and to share with us briefly uh, her report. So would you please give her a hand and welcome her. I noticed that you said briefly. I may have gone over my time limit earlier at the nine o'clock service. But yes, it was a real privilege to be part of the Way Forward Committee. There were 14 of us who met on a very regular basis. We got to know each other quite well, all laity. And so we developed a momentum, you might say, and moved forward with the task that had been given to us. And you think about how are you going to help path the direction of a church that has been here for many, many years. So we did a lot of praying. We did a lot of discerning. We did some grieving because this was a very powerful uh, task ahead of us. But these people were uh, devoted. They were um, chosen for a reason. We had um, some attorneys that we wouldn't let talk. We had um, bankers. So we had a variety of people who came forward to give their service to this church. And so over the months, and it has been over a year now that we met on a regular basis, we made the decision that um, Mount Horeb should, depending on all of the gathering of our um, information that we should disaffiliate, separate from the United Methodist Church. We made that recommendation to our ad council, who in turn supported us. And so you've had both the administrative council and our way forward committee voting to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church. 
We found that the church itself in general was moving away from our uh, historical Orthodox Wesleyan traditions, that it was becoming a church that we did not want to be part of, a church that was not recognizing the authority of the scripture, a church that was um, not upholding the bishops in particular, not upholding our uh, book of discipline, which every clergy takes a vow to support. So a vote of yes today to separate from the United Methodist Church is a vote for Mount Horeb to stay the same. We are not moving on to another denomination we will remain united we will remain in the church we will be the same the one that you've grown to love a healthy biblical based mission minded church one that you can uh, see mature disciples that you can help mobilize other people a vote no will mean that we will continue as United Methodist, part of a denomination that is moving away from the orthodox understanding of the authority of scripture, a church that will be continued to be part of um, moving, a church that will no longer be um, recognizing the sanctity of marriage as we know it, um, the accountability of bishops and other church leaders will not be where we want it to be. So it will be an open defiance of what we know is the book of discipline. You think about these two options. We've done our job, now we're turning it over to you, the congregation, to make those decisions. It is an awesome day. It is a day that we have looked forward to we have the momentum that is going in that direction. We ask that you prayerfully come back at 2 uh, to register, get your ballot, and vote at 3 this afternoon. And in the meantime, um, pray for uh, people to come out to do this. This is your opportunity to say who we are and what we want to be in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much, Martha. Very well spoken. Um, great timing. Thank you for all your work. It's been a privilege as we've gone through this process to become closer with our lay leadership. And as Martha said, it was the majority vote of the uh, unanimous uh, of the way forward and unanimous of the administrative council to enter into the process to discern whether to separate uh, from the United Methodist Church. So although that is the majority, a unanimous majority of both of those councils, if we do vote to disaffiliate today, we will be in the minority of the churches of South Carolina at this point in time, is what Pastor Jeff told me uh, just the other day. And with every opportunity for momentum and change, there is loss. And some people feel that. And that's okay to feel that um, the loss in a different way as we try to go forward and we try to leverage the, the momentum that God has given to this church. And let me just say this. This is a special church. 
Um, this is a special church. It, in my opinion, I've served in four different churches. This is an anomaly of churches, and that is one of the reasons why I accepted the position and moved my family halfway across the country, uh, because there is a unique anointing, in my opinion, upon this church and upon you as a people uh, and upon God's plan for us. And maybe you felt the momentum pause just a little bit in the past couple of years. It has paused a little bit because we were a bit unsure about what was going on in the denomination and who we would be and where we would go forward. But now we would like to lean back into the momentum that God has for us and who we are to be and going forward and reaching out with the same message of Jesus that we've always reached out with, the same message of love and hope and hospitality that we've always been. We want to continue to do that well. Well, and so I'm grateful for our lay leadership. This is a lay-led process. The pastors on staff, the ordained pastor, they can't even vote. It's a lay-led process. It's up to you. I'm a lay person. It's up to me. I can vote to come out and to use our voice today to say this is who we are and who we want to be. Throughout church history, you have seen the church thrive not when it is in the center of the culture, but when it is on the fringes and the margins of the culture. We've always thrived as a people, not when we've been the overwhelming majority, but when we've been the minority. The mighty minority are unmoved even if they are marginalized. You see, and I know that the landscape for you in this room in the past 15 years has been difficult to stomach because you have seen Judeo-Christian values move from the center of culture and the social sphere such as schools and education and businesses. You have seen it move to the fringes and it all happened very rapidly. So you had to develop some grief muscles to say, oh my goodness, what's happening? What's going on? And you felt the loss and you felt the shift and you felt the change and it made you want to fight for something or look for something or try to hold on and try to figure out how to go forward. And you had to learn how to build up momentum and how to do this. I just want to say I understand what that felt like for you, what that cost you. I, don't, I didn't necessarily experience it in the same way, but I see what you were going through. I heard the conversations. And let me just encourage us, though, that the, the Christian, the history of Christianity has always thrived when it's been put in the margins, when it's been under persecution, when it's been under attack from a hostile culture that doesn't understand the weird things that we think and the weird things that we do. That's the same for the early church. Here's some benefits of being marginalized as a church in America if we hold to our orthodox theology and orthopraxy. It will be marginalized, but this will do away with nominal Christianity. It will actually cost people now something to say that they're a Christian or that they attend church. It will do away with cultural Christianity. There will be less hypocrisy because of it. There will be genuine conversion. It's not a thing anymore just to, hey, it's Sunday, let's go to church. So people who actually want to check out Jesus and enter into relationship with him, it's going to cost them something. So the conversion will be genuine. And when we are marginalized, that's when the church is at its best. When we are opposed and persecuted and when people throw verbal stones at us and we don't fire back. 
But we, like our Savior on the cross, live lives of open sacrifice with our wounded hearts bleeding out of love for the world around us. And we say, this is what new humanity looks like. Do you want to get some of it? When we're with the people in the culture and in the world, not against them, when we're in the trenches with them and saying, yeah, we understand what real life is like. We don't have this sort of gospel that just takes away all of our problems, but we have support and strength in the midst of our problems. And we're going to be with you in the world, but not of the world. You say, well, why did the early church, the early church who was completely marginalized by the Roman Empire and persecuted, how did they thrive? They thrive by two different ways. First, they maintain their unique identity as the set-apart people of God. And second, they maintained their meaningful mission. They did not compromise on who they were called to be. That never gives anyone momentum with people around them. They had high standards and high ethics. And the Roman Empire looked at them and they looked at how they cared for babies. They looked at how they cared for the elderly. They looked at how they cared for each other. They looked at their hospitality. They looked at their integrity with their mouths that they weren't going to gossip or slander or get into social media battles. And when they were struck out against, they were going to turn the other cheek. They looked at their standards and ethics of marriage and sexuality. And it was unique and it was set apart, not superior, but set apart. It wasn't a I'm better than mentality. It was a this is who God has redeemed us to be. And they maintained that unique identity. And that was attractive because it actually called people to something greater and something higher and something different. And they maintained their meaningful mission. When the Romans were running away from their own because of the plagues, the Christians were running too at their own risk and detriment, laying down their lives, humble, sacrificial, generous, outpouring of grace and love, just like Jesus taught and just like Jesus did. They weren't perfect, but they were faithful. We're not perfect, but we're called to be faithful. And when we maintain our high ethics and our high standards and we're not judgy about it, but we reach out and we live lives and we rub shoulders with people who don't act, talk, think, or vote like us, and maybe we deeply disagree with their lifestyle, but we're still with them in relationship, always holding out hope for the sake of the gospel till death do us part. That tells an attractive story to the culture around us because as far as I'm concerned, it really is good news to be in relationship with God. It really is good news. We have something good to say. 1 Peter 2 puts it like this. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, even if they falsely accuse you of doing wrong. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Sounds like some teacher we know. That they may see your good works and glorify God on the day he visits us. God always calls his people 
to maintain their unique set-apart identity. And he calls us to maintain our mission to lay down our lives for our neighbor. To learn how to have winsome, thoughtful, challenging conversations. To have civil discourse in a day and age where it seems like the art of conversation is completely gone. To say, I don't think like you, but that does not mean that we cannot be close friends. And we get to invite people to come to know the living God who lives his life in and through us. We don't do it because of who they are. We do it because of who we are. hundred years ago in New York City, the Jewish population uh, understood that they had an immigration challenge and they wanted to help their own. So they started HIAS, Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. They began to help other Jewish people who were coming into New York City, immigrating there, They realized they needed to extend help and transition. But they also soon started to realize once they got off the ground and once they had some momentum, they soon started to realize that there were a lot of other different types of people immigrating into New York City that needed their help also. So they began to change some of their mission statement and it sounded something like this. We don't help people now because they're Jewish. We help people because we're Jewish. Friends, we don't reach out because they're Christian. We reach out because we're Christian. We don't love people because they're just like us. We love people because we have a Savior who redeemed us in his likeness and his image. We don't love people because they agree with us on everything or we agree with them on everything. We love people because that's what Jesus did for us. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay his life down for his friends and his enemies. Wherever you are, whatever the obstacles are in your way, whatever fear you might have, whatever new landscape God might be inviting you to, I pray that you leave here with a different spirit and that the report of the minority would ring loud in your hearts and ring loud in your minds and that we would walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege to be with your people. What a privilege to be in your truth. I pray that you would take what you have spoken today and plant it deep within our hearts. Let it bear fruit. Let it cause us to need and understand our need for Christ even more. May we continue to be a church that trusts in you, that looks to you, that has eyes wide open, but hearts full of faith. Father, there's some people in this room that are going through unspeakable pain and challenges. Be close to them. Remind them that you're near to the brokenhearted and the outcast. Father, there's some in this room who are on the verge of despair because it's been so long since they felt your touch. Would you pour out your spirit and revive them again. Father, help us know that although the giants look big, you're even bigger. Let us not only fix our eyes on the obstacles, but let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
Lead us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chad. We need